0: If you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them and turn with me to the book of Colossians. We're going to start out in the book of Colossians. We're going to pick up where we left off last week with a little bit of an introduction for us uh, to remind us of where we've been. We are talking in Philippians chapter 2 about the sanctification, the process of sanctification, where God the Father works through us, through the Spirit, to bring about our Christ likeness. And we see a tension in the verses that we've been discussing. We see God's part very clearly on display, but we see our part very clearly on display. And as I've been reading through my Bible and I've been reading through with, um, Hannah and with Chelsea for our family devotions, we've been reading through Colossians together. We take little tiny paragraphs at a time and we just read them together, talk about them for two or three sentences, sing, pray, and we are hoping that all of that would not only instruct our hearts and encourage our hearts, but also uh, till the soil of Chelsea's heart as well. But as we are reading through Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1, just to show you yet another place where this tension is seen, Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, hold this tension Together And we could spend a lot of time in these verses discussing how the tension is held, and that's what we're going to do in Philippians. Uh, Verse 21 of Colossians chapter 1 says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So, we are not in that passage at all as far as the doing is concerned. God reconciled us in Christ's fleshly body through death in order to present us before him. We don't present ourselves. He presents us before him. He is entirely the agent working in verse 22. But, verse 23, it says, "...if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel..." That you have heard which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now we know the Bible clearly teaches if you are saved, you will stay saved. And that's exactly what this passage is saying. It's not conditioned upon your working out in obedience or sanctification to prove or to earn before God right standing for him to say, yeah, I guess you are actually okay. You've been obedient. You've been okay." So. Uh, good for you, and now you deserve heaven. It's not what these verses teach. These verses teach that if Jesus has truly saved you, if he has reconciled you, then you will continue in the faith. And if you are like the soil in uh, the early chapters in Mark and Matthew chapter 4, if you are the soils um, that you see very clear, it's Mark chapter 4, you see very clearly there are multiple types of soils, four to be exact, And the majority of those soils are not saved. Three of those soils are not saved. One of those soils is saved. The one that receives the word, that bears much fruit, and that continues to do so is saved. There are two of those soils that are not saved soils that are very scary and that I believe this passage of Scripture would inform our understanding of. There are two of those soils that the the seed goes into the soil and it begins to sprout fruit and bear a vine, and bear some sort of fruit, but then it quickly goes away. It quickly goes away, whether it's burned away by the summer heat, by the sun, um, whether it has no roots ultimately, and it just withers up, whether it's tangled in rocks, and has no other way to grow. Either way, there are some of us who might sprout fruit. And it looks like, I think there's a perfect example of kind of those winter camp and summer camp hives of youth group. I will live for Jesus. I will worship him all the days of my life. And you have about four months of righteous living. This looks great. And then you go back to living the exact same way you were before you came to Christ, before you made the profession of faith. This verse says, if Jesus has saved you, and if you have truly come to him in faith, then you will continue in that faith. You will stay saved, ultimately not by your doing, but you are involved in the process of sanctification. So this is just another area where the tension is shown, and it is a sticky tension, but it is a tension that we can know without a shadow of a doubt in the gray, fuzzy areas of it, in the mystery of it, we can know there are black and whites on the other sides. We can know concretely, for sure, with with a... Matter-of-factness from God's Word. That God is the one who saves. We are not the ones who save ourselves. That's impossible. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead people can't raise themselves up to newness of life. Jesus has to breathe life into you. And once he does do that, then we are equipped. The uh, power of canceled sin is being broken and so we find ourselves in this tension, the exact same tension that we found in the couple of verses before in Philippians chapter 2. How can Jesus be 100% God, 100% man at the exact same time? What we know without a shadow of a doubt in the scriptures, we bow the knee to and we cling to with all of our hearts. What is a mystery? We leave as a mystery. And ultimately, in these areas of mystery, if you pull the mystery out of it and you go to one side, you take the pendulum to one side, for instance predestination and free will. Which is it? How does that work? Is God sovereign? Does he choose or do I choose? It's yes. It's a hundred percent of both. And if you take the mystery out, if you go to one side and say, God chooses, therefore we don't have to do anything. We could just sit on a lazy bull and do nothing. If you pull the mystery out, then you're missing the tension that the scriptures clearly preach and teach. If you go to the other side and you say, well, God's not sovereign at all. We do everything. We are the agents in saving ourselves and keeping ourselves and glorifying ourselves and we take the mystery out and we put it to the other side and that ultimately ends up becoming heresy. So, in Philippians chapter 2 and I invite you to turn there, this theology of sanctification is everywhere in the scriptures and the tension is equally everywhere in the scriptures. And last week we began looking at this tension of sanctification. What is it? What is Paul trying to teach us in these verses. Verses 12 and 13 of Philippians chapter 2 read this. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Last week, just by way of Reminder for us, because we need to remember where we've been so that we don't jump off the the uh, um, extremes into false doctrine. This passage is not speaking about our justification. We spoke last week about the three uses of the New Testament word salvation. And the three usage, uh, uses of those words are referring to justification, glorification, and sanctification uh, all together. They are commonly used in the scriptures, specifically in the New Testament, to refer to those three categories of the way that God saves us. You see the word salvation used, for instance, in Romans chapter one, verse 16. We looked at it in Family Bible Hour this morning. That is uh, speaking of justification, where God declares us righteous, not because of any just deservings that we have in ourselves, but solely because of his grace to the praise of the glory of his grace. That is a, we, we discussed it being a monergistic work. It is one person working. We're not involved in that working. God justifies us and we don't have any agency involved in that. And that's a past action. It's done one time in the past and its implications live out in the present. Salvation is also used in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 9 verses 27 through 28 in First Peter chapter 1 verses 5 and 9 to speak of a future moment of glorification. Specifically in 1 Peter, Peter writes, you are anxiously awaiting the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Are we waiting to see if indeed we were saved? No, this is glorification. We are waiting for the day, knowing that we have been justified, we are waiting for the day that we will be glorified. Again, a monergistic work. Instead of being in the past, this is in the future, it's not in the present. And then thirdly and finally, in the New Testament, this word salvation is used in reference to sanctification. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. This is the present. Justification is the past monergistic work. Glorification is the future monergistic work. Sanctification is the present, and it is synergistic. We're working together with God in this process because it is God who is at work in us. In justification, sin's penalty is paid in full and it is finished. In glorification, sin's presence is gone forever. In sanctification, sin's power is being broken. We talked about sanctification just meaning uh, to make holy. We, we can't turn our, our noun holy into a verb to say uh, holify. Um, we say, to make holy. That's what the word sanctification is. Uh, The Greek can turn that noun into a verb. The process of sanctification, therefore, is the process by which God works in us and makes us holy like Christ. We started talking about a couple wrong views of sanctification. I want to just go over those again and add to them. Number one, we talked about sanctification through osmosis. It's just i'm at church if i do the things i need to do then god will make me holy through other people if i just surround myself with godly people then i will be sanctified no participating in spiritual activities is very good and it's helpful but it is not the end all in sanctification number two a false a wrong view of sanctification is is that it's just external behavior being changed merely external behavior being changed and this is crucial Because a lot of people wanting, desiring with right motives to change, they start externally and work their way internally. External behavior does change in sanctification, but it starts in the heart. It starts in the desires, as we will see in Philippians chapter 2. Another wrong view is that it doesn't really matter if I change. I can stay the same. It doesn't really matter if I become holy or more holy. God knows I struggle. Everybody struggles. God knows I sin, so it's okay. And we looked at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, that says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which you will not see the Lord. If you are genuinely saved, this is a must for you to be working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Let me give you a couple more. I just want to give you three more wrong views of sanctification. A third or a fourth wrong view is that Just keeping rules and regulations will be sanctification. Just keep rules. This would be called legalism. And one of the reasons why this doesn't work is because it's always a moving target. Um, What 50 years ago would have been determined to be extremely sinful, today is seen as totally fine. Uh, One way you can totally see the trend of rules and and ideas and philosophies changing is just look at bathing suits. Um, If you were to have... Women at the beach today go back 50 years ago and what they're wearing today, they would have been locked up in jail and considered criminally insane. So you cannot, you cannot follow the rules of today's um, society and cultural rules and understandings and say, well, I'll just keep those and therefore I will be made holy. It's a moving target. It's constantly a moving target. We need to go to scripture and say, what does God demand of me? But again, legalism doesn't help in changing the heart. It changes externals. And if we change the externals, that's great. But if we're not changing the heart, then we are going to grow deeper disdain for God in those areas in our heart while looking like we're changing the externals. Sanctification is all about the heart. A fifth wrong uh, motivation or wrong way that we are sanctified is just to simply avoid overtly sinful actions. This is The uh, monastic movement, people became monks because they decided, let's just go ahead and separate ourselves. And therefore, if we separate ourselves and we aren't involved in overtly sinful actions, then we will be sanctified. What they began to realize is they took the sinful depravity outside of the monastery with them into the monastery in their own hearts. It doesn't work. It can't work. Um, I was going to say something about homeschooling, but I think I'll pass. Number six, accumulating knowledge about spiritual things. Accumulating knowledge about spiritual things. Oh, if I just know the right thing to do or know the right way to think alone, that that will sanctify me. Now, we need to know certain things in order to be sanctified. But if we stop at just merely accumulating knowledge, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 says it will just puff us up. We are not going to be judged one day based on the amount of truth in our heads. Oh, I knew all this about you, God. God's not going to go, oh, good, you knew that, great. We're going to be judged based on the amount of truth that we lived out in our lives. It's about living it out. The reason why none of these six things are ultimately truly biblical sanctification is that unbelievers can do all of those things. Unbelievers can do all those things. They can change their behavior. They can go to... AA and stop being an alcoholic. They can do that. Unbelievers can know a lot of things about God. There are a lot of professors at secular universities that teach Bible classes that know more about the Bible than I do. You can can do that. Ultimately, the demons know more about God than we do, but that doesn't make them saved, James tells us. So what is sanctification biblically? What is it really We looked last week at the three aspects of our sanctification, the three realities of our sanctification as seen in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. We started with the motivation for our sanctification where Paul says, So then, looking at the example of Jesus' humility and his obedience, so then you too obey the way that he obeyed. You do what he did. He lived out the example, and now you follow that example. And you follow because you know, since he paved the way for you to be obedient, you can be obedient. Our motivation is Christ's example. It's Christ's power. It's Christ's humility. It's Christ looking to the reward. It's also the fact that we are loved. My beloved, so then, based on what everything Paul had discussed in the gospel, in the earlier verses, my beloved, those that I love and those that are loved of God, This is not to earn God's love. It's because you already have God's love. And then Paul says, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. This isn't a rebuke that you are just um, lazy and undisciplined and you've got to get your act together. This is you are obeying and you need to just continue. Excel still more. We must understand Paul's grounding of our work in God's work. And I want to bookend what we're going to talk about this morning with, those, with that truth. God's work, we're going to look at our work a little bit more and then we're going to spend the rest of our time on God's work. But I want to show you that Paul grounds our work in God's work. Turn to chapter 1, verse 1. Just a couple notes before we dive into our work. Because again, if we just take our eyes off of Jesus and stare at ourselves and say, we need to work out our salvation. I think we will become so frustrated because we are forgetting who we are in Jesus. Does Paul ground the work of believers and the sanctification that they live out, does he ground it in God's love for them and their place in Jesus and their standing in heaven already? Does he do that? That's my question. And I think he does. In verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the... What or whom? Saints. Sanctification comes from that word holy. Saints is holy ones. You who are already holy. Now, we are not holy in the present, but we are holy in heaven, blameless before the Father, wearing the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are holy ones. We are set-apart ones. We are holy in heaven right now. And so he's not saying to all of those who, dependent on how hard you work, can become holy ones. He's saying, oh, you are holy ones. If you believe in Jesus Christ alone and you renounce your sins, you turn from them and you turn to him in faith, knowing that there is no other way of salvation, and you don't work to earn a favor, you rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You are a holy one this morning, right now. You are a saint. He says, you are saints. When we get to chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, we have to remember he's called them saints. They're holy ones. They're not working for their salvation. They're working out what they already have. Verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy, my every prayer for you all, in view of what? In view of your participation in the gospel, your fellowship in the gospel. Now, we have to be careful, we have to look at what Paul is saying. He does not say, I thank you, Philippian church, for your participation in the gospel, for believing, for receiving, and for working out your salvation. I am not thanking the Philippian church, I am thanking God for that work in you, which means what? That work is not your doing, it's God's doing. I'm thanking God because he's the one that did that work in you. If he would have said, I thank you, Philippian church, for participating in the gospel. Then their participation in the gospel is dependent upon them. And that's why Paul is thanking them. But he says, no, God was the one who did it. I thank God. I thank God for the work that he has clearly done in you. Verse 6, obviously a passage where he says, I'm confident that the one who began the work, the one that I thanked earlier in verse 3 because he started it, He's the one who is going to work it out and bring it to a point of uh, perfection and completion. He's the one that's going to do it. I don't have to worry. I'm confident of this thing. And yet it's very interesting that when he says, I'm confident of this thing, he doesn't stop his book. He doesn't stop his letter. I'm confident. So done. Love, Paul. Hugs and kisses. Philippian church. He says, I'm confident of this thing. And then drop down to verse nine through eleven. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He is praying in those verses for the thing that he said would happen in verse 6. He's praying, I want you to be sanctified. I want you to bear fruit and be presented blameless before the father. And I can pray that because I know it's going to happen because I, I know God has promised it. And that's why he wrote verse six. I think one of the misconceptions we have about salvation, and I love this analogy, is that salvation was uh, just a vaccination. It was, an, it was an inoculation. It was just a shot in the arm. What do they give those for now? Smallpox? Here you go. Shot in the arm for smallpox. I think I got a, a shot for smallpox. Do, do they do that anymore? Smallpox? Malaria? I don't know what the diseases are out there. We're going to say smallpox, even if that's not real. I got a shot for smallpox. Maybe I didn't. I don't, I don't know. I don't remember, and I don't really care. All I know is I got a shot way back when, and I have never been sick with that specific disease. A lot of people think of the gospel this way. Hmm. I'm a sinner. If I don't receive the gospel, I'm going to go to hell. So, gospel. Okay, we're done. And they never think about that disease of inherent sin in their hearts, in their bodies, that if they do not repent of that, they're condemned to hell forever. Just a shot in the arm. No, salvation is not an inoculation. It's not a vaccination. It's not a one-time thing, boom, move on. Salvation, and this is just totally for Brian's sake, it's a lot more like physical therapy. It's a lot more like um, you are saved. God raises you from the dead. And now we've got some work to do in those joints that were dead joints. Um, we've got some work to do. And, and we want you to come in Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and it's going to be painful. It's not going to be fun. And it's going to be work. And guess what? If you don't come in the next day that you come in, it's going to be a little bit harder. And if you don't come in for a week, it's going to be a lot harder. But this is the reality of our sanctification. If, in this analogy, we don't go into our physical therapy, God doesn't sit there and go, man, I really hope they come. God comes and gets you. God says, it's time to go. Come on. It's time to go. You need to work. You need to repent. You need to be sanctified. It's not a once saved, always saved, so I don't even have to worry about anything. No, It is once saved, I will stay saved. I will go to physical therapy. And God will work on my heart and I will act the miracle of sanctification. We work. We work. But we don't work because we are afraid that if we don't work, we will not be saved. We work because God has promised to sanctify us through the work. And it is God who is at work in us. And Paul says, remember, you're saints. God began the work. He will complete the work. He will perfect the work. And he prays, uh, be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Live this out. And so he says in chapter 2, so then, because we know these truths, you now have power and encouragement to work. You have power and encouragement to work. We work. We talked last week about Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 39, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This word for work, what is our work? We've seen the motivation. What is our work in sanctification? Verse 12 says, work out your salvation, not work for, not work to earn. Work out what you already have and work out, not salvation and justification, but salvation and sanctification. Work that out. That word work out is also found in Deuteronomy chapter 29 Or 28 verse 39 where it says, you shall plant and cultivate. You shall work out your vineyards. You shall cultivate. You shall plow. You shall dig it up. You shall weed it. You shall get everything out. And then you shall plant. And then when the rains come, you will praise the Lord for working. Because if he wasn't working, then we wouldn't have the chance of growing the crops. But we can't just sit back and say, boy, I hope we get corn this year. (laughs) Man, I really hope. You get the field ready. Cultivate. John 15. You must bear fruit by abiding in Christ. He will bear the fruit through you. It's a command. You must bear the fruit. Jesus promises to bear the fruit if you do the first command, which is you must abide in him. You must abide in him. So this is what I wanted to spend just a little bit of time on. How do we work out? We talked a lot about why we need to work out. and We did discuss a little bit last week of how we work out. But I want to dive into one other passage. John 15, we could look at that. Romans 6, we could look at that. Keith and I talked about that this morning. Romans 6 is crucial to see sanctification, working out the salvation that we've already been given. But turn to Ephesians. I think Ephesians chapter 4 will be helpful in just clarifying how do we do this work? How do we obey the command to work out our salvation? Paul says, work it out with fear and trembling, in awe of God, fearful of God, because the fear of God begins knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. But also, remember the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. He received the gospel with fear and trembling. So I think Paul could also be saying, work out your salvation remembering where it first came, remembering how you first received. Um, I love, I love The Pilgrim's Progress. It's just one of my favorite books. I love the story. And I agree with just everything. It's just an amazing story. There is one difficulty uh, just mentally in my mind when a pilgrim, when Christian goes to the cross, the burden falls off of his back, and he praises the Lord, and then he moves on. And I understand why. I'm not saying it's wrong. He he needs to in the journey that John Bunyan was having uh, in the book. He needs to, and I totally understand. But as believers... We do not say, I believe the gospel, I receive the gospel, and now I don't need to worry about the gospel anymore, and I get to move on from the cross. I like to say often that we as believers need to keep our feet stuck in the blood-stained soil of Calvary. We can't move on from there. We have to stay there, because if we move on from there, we will start to think, Jesus did what he did to work to, to gain my soul, and now I complete that salvation. Kind of a Jesus does his best and I'll do the rest, theology. Thanks, Jesus, for doing that. Now it's my turn. No, we can never do work on our own. We always need the blood of Jesus as we work. Ephesians chapter 4, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. How? What does that look like? In verse 17, Paul says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk... No longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you, believer, you did not learn Christ this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. And what is salvation and then... Justification and sanctification, what do they look like? Verse 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, he's going to give us three specific commands that really detail the process of sanctification. It refers to our salvation and what happened in that moment. But the ongoing process of sanctification looks like this. In reference to your former manner of life, you, number one, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. You lay aside the old self. It is a word picture of removing dirty garments. This is soiled. This is stained. I must take it off and lay it aside. How do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? We look at where our clothes, our spiritual clothes, are dirty. Where is there sin in your life? Where are there wrong thoughts, wrong attitudes, wrong actions, wrong motives? And we take those off. We lay those aside. We pull them off and we lay them aside. We must begin by having our minds stayed in Christ, in his word, because only then will we know what is dirty on our clothes. So it starts with the process of being in God's word to know being in fellowship to know, being in accountability and discipleship to know this is an area that I think needs to change. And then we change it, and we change it by taking off the garment. We lay aside the old self or the old man, literally. We lay aside that old person. We are new creatures in Christ. Don't keep going back to the old clothes on the dead body that has been done away with. Don't keep trying to take those off and put those back on. Pull off the clothes the dirty garments soiled by sin. And then, verse 23, once you put off, you must put on, but you don't just instantly jump from lay aside to put on. Verse 23 is crucial. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So we put off the old nature. We put off sinful desires. We put off old habits and old characteristics and old attitudes. And then we are renewed. Be renewed. Remember we talked about active versus passive voice last week. This is a very tricky word here because it's a command that you must do. You must be renewed. It's a command to you. But it's a passive command. You could translate it this way. You must be being renewed by somebody else. Who's the someone else who's going to renew us? It's the Holy Spirit. You must be renewed by someone else. That's a very tricky command. You have to do it, but somebody else is going to do it through you and in you. How do we do this? How do we bring this about? If you look over to chapter 5, you'll see this uh, same command in a passive way in verse 18 of chapter 5, Paul says don't get drunk with wine. That's the put off. That's dissipation. But instead, the put on is be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that again is a command. You must be filled. But it's a passive command. You must be being filled by somebody else, by the Spirit. How do we do this? Paul will say in Galatians chapter 4 that we must walk by the Spirit. Same thing. We are passively led by the Spirit, but it's a command to us. How do we do this? Well, we do this by putting ourselves in the way of truth that the Spirit uses to renew our minds. We cannot renew our minds on our own. The Spirit does that for us. That's why Paul says, you must be renewed, but the Spirit's going to do it in verse 23 of chapter 4. So how do we put ourselves in the way of being renewed? How do we make this happen? We sit under biblical preaching and teaching. We sit under the authority of God's word on a daily basis, letting the word of God dwell richly in us. This is why Paul will say in Romans chapter 12, we are transformed by the renewing of our what? Our minds. We need to have our minds renewed in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 23. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. It is the mind that is the gateway in right thinking that leads to right living. If I had my two 10th grade classes in here, my two 10th grade Bible classes in here, and I were to say, give me the definition of repentance, they would all, Lord willing, say, Repentance is right thinking that leads to right living. It's not Repentance is not just, oh, I'm going to change my behavior. Repentance is, I must change the way I think about something. I must must change the way I view this. It's a paradigm shift, if you will. Being renewed in the spirit of your mind is having your outlook on life, a disposition on life, a paradigm shift about some aspect in life being radically changed. You're putting on the mind of Christ. And it's changing the way you're, un- you're unmasking sin, though it was pleasurable and satisfying. Now you're seeing, oh, this won't satisfy in the end. And you say, no, I will seek after that which satisfies now and forever. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We don't take every behavior captive. We don't take every emotion captive. It starts with thinking, and right thinking will lead to right feeling, and right feeling and right thinking will lead to right behavior. But the gateway to all of this change is being renewed in the spirit of your mind. Once that happens... Once you've laid aside the old self, once you have put yourself in the way of truth so much so that your mind is being renewed and you're seeing sin rightly, righteousness correctly, then verse 24, you put on the new self. You put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God. And it's been created in righteousness and the holiness of the truth. Now you put on. The righteousness that you read about, the righteousness that you see, the commands, the imperatives that Paul, that Peter, that James, that John give us through the Holy Spirit. Put off, put on. If you want examples of that, you can just go down to verse 28. It's almost as if the Ephesian church would say, what does it look like to put off and put on? Verse 28, he who steals must steal no longer. Put off being a thief. And instead, once his mind has been renewed to see, oh, I have everything that I need in Jesus Christ. This is a sin, first and foremost. It's an offense against the Holy God and it's an offense to steal because not only am I cheating somebody else out of what they justly deserve and righteously deserve through their work, but I'm also not trusting the Lord to provide. I'm taking matters into my own hands. And so instead of being lazy and not working hard and not earning uh, earning the the money or earning the food. I need to stop doing that. And so I'm going to stop stealing. I'm going to stop taking from others. And instead, now that my mind has been renewed about what I must do, I'm going to labor and I'm going to perform with my own hands. What is good so that I can do the exact opposite of stealing instead of taking from people, I'm going to give to people, put off and put on. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Verse 29, stop speaking these words that tear down, that corrupt, that give death. Instead, speak life-giving speech that is good for edification building up, that's good for the need of the moment, that is good to give grace to those who hear. Don't be bitter, verse 31, don't have wrath and anger and clamor in your midst and slander in your midst put it away put it off and instead be kind verse 32 to one another tender hearted forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you so put off be renewed and put on that is the process of sanctification how do we work we work by being here and when we're here God is pleased to affect in us paradigm shifts paradigm changes and that's what Paul is going to say in Philippians chapter 2. It's not it's not first and foremost about externals. You must put off the externals, but then you must change your thinking, change your affections, change your desires. And here's the glory. God changes your desires. God changes your affections. If you say, "Man, I I still really love the sin." I know I shouldn't, but I still really love to sin. Your job in sanctification is to stay here, to be here. And as your mind is being renewed, God, because of his promises to us, will change your desires, will change your affections. As you cling to that which is good and you abhor that which is evil. God works in us. Verse 13 of Philippians chapter 2. God works in us. So. With the time we have remaining, I want to look at God's work in us. We must work, but how do we work knowing that God is at work? What does God do? What is God's role? We looked at the motivation of sanctification. We looked at our role in sanctification, and now we're going to look at God's role in sanctification. We spent probably two minutes on that last week, so we'll spend a little bit more time on that this week. And ultimately, we're not going to get into every aspect of sanctification. Maybe one day we'll spend a a series going through the Bible on sanctification. Um, So if we have questions afterwards, let's keep on diving into the scriptures together to answer them. Let's keep on diving in together. uh, And they will work themselves out by God's grace through his word. What does God do? How does God change us? How does God promise to work in us? There are four features about God's work in us found in this one verse in verse 13. First, the power that is at work. We're going to look at the power at work in verse 13. It is God who is at work. It's God who is at work. It's the energeo of God. It's the energy of God. God's energy energizes us inside of us to work. It's not us having to fight to energize ourselves, God is at work in us. You can work because God is at work. Literally, we could translate it, God is the energy in you to will and to energize for his own pleasure. And there is something beautiful about the grammar here. You didn't think you'd ever say grammar is beautiful, but there is something beautiful about the grammar here. God is at work. That is a present tense. It is not. God worked on you, and now you're on your own. Which, if that's the case, we are up a creek without a paddle big time. We don't even have a boat. We're in deep trouble. No, this isn't. God worked on you. Fend for yourself. This isn't work really hard, but I promise God will start working in the future. Just wait. Wait it out. This is present tense. God is working in you, right now. God is working in you right now. And God will work in you in the next moment. And God will work in you in the next moment. God is working in the present tense. Even when you don't feel like it, even when you don't see it, God is working. God is working. Turn back over to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says it a different way. Look at the power that that is at work in us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you would know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. We want to see his power at work in us, and he has promised to give us his power. And then he says this, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. We have the strength of the God who made the universe alive and well in our souls which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Listen, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is in you, in this very moment, working to make you more like Christ. You are not left to your own devices. You are not left on your own. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. We know this verse, we say this verse, we recite the beginning of this verse often, but we don't go to the end of it, usually. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. You know that, that part, right? According to the power that works within us. He can do far more abundantly than you could ask or think. He can do more abundantly than you can ask or think about your sinful behaviors and your sinful desires. If you look and you are discouraged saying, will I ever defeat these sinful desires? Will I ever stop being impatient at home? Will I ever start loving my family the way I'm supposed to love? If you are struggling with sinful desires, God says he is able to do in you something that is beyond what you could possibly imagine. And that is changing your affections, changing your desires, changing your behavior, and presenting you spotless and blameless before the Father. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. we start started in verse 26. This is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to the saints. What's this mystery? Something that was hidden and now is revealed. It's this. To whom God willed, verse 27, to make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. Christ in you, at work in you, and Jesus alone, not your goodness, is the hope of glory. Jesus in you is the hope of glory. So Paul says God is at work. God is at work. That is the power that's at work in us. A second aspect of God's role in our sanctification is the place of working. God is at work and he is the power in our work. Secondly, he is not only the power at work, but let's look at the place of his working. It is God who is at work where? In you. He's not only and not merely working externally upon you from outside influences. He's doing that right now through the preaching of his word. But he's working in you. He has promised to work in you. He's not just presenting truths from the outside. He's in the depths of your souls right now working on you. Romans 8 verse 9. Just write these down. Romans 8 verse 9. Says the Spirit dwells in you, and if the Spirit dwells in you, then Christ Himself dwells in you. That's not saying I know that we have a, you know, theology of um, invite Jesus into my heart, and uh, there's good and bad that's come out of that. It's not saying that Jesus is like split up into a bunch of different billion parts and pieces, and he's inside of every human heart, just resting there, uh, just little Jesus resting there. Um, this is that His presence is manifest through the Spirit in you to work in you to His glory. He is at work in you. He is in heaven, and He is also omnipresent in a way that He is at work in us through the Spirit. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives. Jesus, who li- it, He lives in me. He's the one who now lives through me, and the life that I do live, because I am still alive even though I was crucified with Christ, the life that I do live, I live now by faith in Jesus Christ because he's the power that's w- at work in me. He's working in you. We saw that in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. He is in you, and Jesus being in you is the hope of glory. Thirdly, not only is his power at work in us, and not only is he at work in us, the place of his working, but also what does his work produce? And this we could take so much time on. But what does his work produce? Two main things. And you see them there in Philippians chapter two, verse 13, to will and to work. God is at work. It is his energy, his energeto. He is at work in you, not outside of you, but in you. And what is he doing? What does his work produce? Paul says to will and to work. And there's an order to that. It's not to externally figure out things and change things and then kind of work backwards. It's to change you from the very inside out. The word will refers to a thoughtful, purposeful choice or decision. He changes your uh, decision-making capabilities. He changes your desires. He changes your affections. What you used to love, now you hate. And what you used to hate and couldn't care less about, now you love. That's because he's doing that upon you. We can't do that ourselves. We try. We want to. But Romans 3.10 says that apart from God calling us and saving us, no one seeks after God. No one is righteous. No one does good. There's no one who can, on their own, do good. So Paul is saying that from the moment of salvation, God has been working on your will. And he's not just robotically forcing your will. He's changing your affections. And then, not only is he changing your affections, but he's giving you the ability to live out those affections that you have in your work, to will and to work. He changes your affections. And then he, as he changes your affections and you say, I really want to start living for Jesus right now. Then he says, okay, I've changed the affections. Now let's give you the power to do that, to do what it is you want to do now. He changes your affections. Just write Psalm 119, Verse 36 down. This is a prayer. God, change my affections. He says, Incline, the psalmist says, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to my own selfish gain. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Take my heart and make it love you. Incline my heart to your testimonies. So, to will, he changes our desires. He changes our affections. He changes our thoughtful, purposeful choosing and deciding. And then to work, he changes how we are able to follow through on what we are desiring to do. So anytime you ever have a desire to do anything that is spiritual, that is good, praise God. That's God at work in you. Anytime you are ever excited over spiritual things, praise God. That is an evidence of grace in your heart and in your soul. Lastly, the purpose of this work. Why does God do any of this? So many reasons, but let's just take Paul at face value here for his good pleasure. God is the one at work. It is his energy. He is the one working and we have the power of God in our souls and it is in our souls. The place of the working is inside of us. What does he do? What is the what is produced through the work of God being in us and working in us? It's new affections and new abilities to live out those affections, new desires A new righteous living. Why does He do it? All for His good pleasure. As we sang earlier, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Because we could never stand before others and say, look at me, I'm so holy, I'm so righteous. Look at all the things that I've done right. If you've done anything right, it is because God worked that in you. It's because God worked that in you. And He has promised that He will never leave us He will never forsake us. He will never say, you just sinned one too many times and I'm done with you. He crushed his son on the cross, which Romans 8 tells us that was the hardest thing for God to do. He did not spare his own son. And if he did not spare his own son, but instead said, I will slaughter him on the cross with your sin upon his shoulders... I will condemn your sin upon his shoulders, pour all of my wrath on him, not on you, and then I will take his righteousness and give it to you. If God has done the hardest thing, then brothers and sisters, it is an easy thing for God to perfect you. It is an easy thing for him to preserve you and to keep you. And it is something that he has promised to do. John Owen said, God works in us and with us, not against us and without us. God working in us motivates, God's grace motivates. Charles Spurgeon says the assistance of divine grace is not given to us to put aside our own efforts, but to excite them. Sometimes we come to the Lord's Supper and I think in our condemnation, we look at these elements and we go, what am I doing? I've sinned again in the exact same area. I've sinned again. I'm struggling again. I just can't seem to get any better. And instead of being motivated by the work of God in us, we say, I'm done. I give up. God, if you want to do this work, you can do it, but I'm just out. I'm done. This morning as we partake of the Lord's Supper, I want us to partake in such a way that we stare at the love and the grace of God, the salvation that God gives us through Jesus Christ in the moment of justification and the promise that comes with it, that he who began the good work in you, will be faithful to complete it. He started it. Don't doubt he will complete it. Don't doubt he will finish it. What are we called to do? Let me give you just a spectrum, a process, if we can kind of put it into a linear fashion. God gives us a new nature. He saves us. And then he unites us to Jesus in his death and resurrection. And he works in us to free us from sin's dominion and power. And then he gives us the power to obey and he creates in us a desire for the truth. That's God. Then the believer takes the desire for the truth and dives in and learns and seeks to put on the mind of Christ. And when the believer does that, the spirit gives illumination so the believer can understand when the believer seeks to obey the truth that has come alive in his heart. The spirit is pleased to lead him in that obedience. We make a plan. We discipline ourselves. We work out that plan of obedience. But God is the one who creates new desires in our wills and empowers lasting change in our inner man. We do have a part, but boy, it's a tiny part. If we don't work, God still works. And there's never a scenario where God says, I'm going to stop my work. He who began the good work in you will be faithful. Will be faithful to complete it. Do you perceive his work in your life? Do you respond to the work that you clearly see? God doing? I asked you last week to talk to one another. Do you see it? Maybe you don't because every day you're just looking internally and you're seeing constantly such tiny little shifts that it doesn't make a a sense in the broad scheme of things that you really are changing. And so what I want us to do is I want us to ask the Lord to reveal in our own hearts as we prepare now for communion. Give us evidences of grace. Maybe you can think about what other people shared with you last Sunday or over the week. God, where are you working? Where are you moving? And where can I put something aside? And where can I be renewed in the truth of your word? And where can I put on the righteousness that you've demanded? The only reason that we can work and the only only reason we should be motivated and excited to work is because of these elements right here. Because God's at work in you. Father, I thank you for... Your grace, I thank you for your love, and I pray even as we partake of communion together, as we prepare our hearts, as we prepare our minds, as we consider the love of Jesus that began the good work in us, and as we sing about sin being done away with once and for all, and as we sing about that that last day when the presence of sin is gone forever, God, may we now in this moment plead with you to continue that work in us. Your precious blood will never lose its power. So may we not doubt. And even now, if Satan is tempting us to despair and telling us of the guilt within, may we say, yes, we agree we are guilty, we are sinners, and that's why Jesus was crushed on the cross for me in my place. I have died to sin, therefore I will not live in it any longer. Guide our thoughts, even now as we meditate upon your sacrifice. We pray in your name. Amen.